and welcome to 15 Years at Love the Fact, a podcast of opinions while rewatching Avatar. With a few facts sprinkled in. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kevin. And we are here again going over our rewatch reactions of Chapter 3, The Southern Air Temple. E. So, uh, starting us off right here at the beginning of the episode, I think that this was a really funny, like, kind of introduction to an episode that is otherwise kind of serious, uh, where we see, um, Sokka being very traditionally Sokka on brand, uh, you know, lazy and tired, unless it involves anything to do with food. Um, Or firebenders. Or firebenders. And so he's just wanting to be a normal teenager and sleep in, and Aang, I guess, being a typical child, wanting to wake up at the crack of dawn and get going, um, decides that he is going to play a prank on Sokka in order to get what he wants, which is uh, to go to the air temple. And I, I put a little note right here for that um, face that Aang makes at one minute and 37 seconds. Uh-huh. And I just wrote mischievous Aang face. Yes, it's true. <laughs> There's a lot of good facial animations in this one. I really just, I like the way that his face just gets all scrunched up and he gets this huge, big, like, smile, like, toothy grin. It was just, I don't know, really, really funny to yeah. me. And um, But I also made a note of uh, part of the prank was screaming that Sokka had a quote-unquote prickle snake prickle snake mm-hmm. in his sleeping bag another another animal i don't think we ever actually see no but it is an animal to add to our atla critterpedia so mm-hmm. if you're keeping track so far we have flying air bison we have um a flying lemur which is what momo is yes um which i'm sorry we don't see momo until later in the episode so kind of a spoiler but whatever uh <laughs> Uh, before that, we had the... They were just penguins, right? Yeah, they were just called penguins, even though they had four arms and, like, weird eyes and stuff and looked like otters. Right. Okay. So we had that, and then we had fish. Mm-hmm. Just fish. So that's the Critterpedia we have so far. Well, I mean, Aang is also mentioned fl- hopping llamas, hog monkeys. Ah, yes. Yeah. Okay, yes. Yeah, so we also have hog monkeys. I need to keep a note of this, of like, the Critterpedia <laughs> of Atla. So, um, yeah, that's another little animal that we are at least told about, even though we never get to, to see. Um, so, I don't know, any thoughts you have on the beginning of this episode? Nothing other than that, like, I just think it shows that, like, Aang is just barely excited to show his new friends, you mm-hmm. know, where he came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, this is definitely an episode that's starting off very um, full of anticipation, mm-hmm. all right? Uh, at least for Aang uh, and his friends. And then we go to the other side of it really quickly. At 1 minute 57 seconds, we're over to where what's going on with Zuko and um, his right, little... Right, this, this whole episode just goes back and forth between the Aang gang's perspective and Zuko's. Right, absolutely. And uh, we get to see for the first time a real size comparison between Zuko's <laughs> ship and the others in the yeah. harbor. We kind of talked about this last episode, I think, but this is like the first time you really get to see, like, oh, even though it kind of looked like a huge ship last episode, it's actually not that big of a warship. Yeah, I, I think we both wrote the same note because it's like 154... You know, they just show Zuko and Iroh coming down out of their ship, and it's just, like, minuscule compared to the other warships. Yes, yeah. So we kind of are getting some clues there, right, into what's going on with Zuko and his standing. And I actually mm-hmm. wrote a lot of questions throughout this episode of just, like, wondering a bit about what is the... um political standing of an exiled prince, mm-hmm. right? And 
One of the first questions I had uh, related to this was at 2 minutes, 12 seconds, we are introduced to Commander Zhao, uh, yes. who just recently was promoted, according to Zuko. Uh, he was before this Captain Zhao. You want to know what I wrote down about Commander Zhao? What? I wrote down, F that guy. <laughs> yes, he is. Um, he is definitely... For lack of a better word, um, the jerk face of this season. <laughs> yeah, no, he is very easy to not like. Yeah, like you think that Zuko is like, you know, the big meanie, but really I think Zhao shows what it means to be someone who's truly underhanded. Mm-hmm. And uh, Well, he he's like the definition of the like rank ascending. Like, power hungry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I think that was a great introduction, right? Is like showing that like he will do whatever it takes to like get more power to get another rung That's true. up. I, I didn't think about that. Like his literal first introduction is like it's commander now. Yes. You know? like, like he's oh. recently had like a power change, yeah. right? And um, so that is definitely showing, yeah, that kind of hunger for um, more mm-hmm. control. Uh, so... Uh, another thing I wrote here during this, like, introductory scene, um, first of all, why are Zuko and Iroh so bad at lying? Yeah. <laughs> Zuko in particular just seems to have a real, like, just, he's just not good at it, just yeah. consistently. I would think that someone like him would be a little bit better at bluffing, but I guess, like, he's just not no. at all, and he, like, tries to rely on Uncle Iroh, and for some reason, Uncle Iroh in this situation is also not good at lying, whether or not that's, like intentional i don't know but it's always hard to tell with iroh you know it is it is hard to read him especially in this first season i think uh but yeah i had a question here around this introductory scene with Zhao. was like um i remember that zuko was trying to kind of brush off Zhao and like his uh, invitation to come have a drink with him mm-hmm. and i remember that iroh kind of said in response zuko show more respect yeah right and so i wrote this question like you know even though zuko is exiled you know is his rank you know not still above someone who's a commander or well, is it like he's just kind of a, of questionable or unknown status i think it's more that he's just young oh okay you know he like he's still a prince though yeah i mean i know he's been exiled so i don't know if that makes him lose political status that's true it's hard to say what because zuko has a lot of qualifiers to him in terms of rank right because he doesn't seem like a formal part of the military or anything yeah and while you know he's still treated relatively princely Mm mm-hmm he doesn't seem to have a lot of authority either. Right. I mean, I do realize that um, even from this little like glimpse that we have had into the show and the setting that the Fire Nation is definitely very much like a militarized state. Yeah. Right? Um, that a lot of the power is centralized in the military. Yes. So I totally get that like the royal family would have a court that's just made up of you know commanders, generals, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, like those would be the people like basically second rung below the royal family in terms of power and uh influence so um i guess i understand that maybe like zhao is of you know decent remarkable you know political standing but i guess i was just kind of like in question of like is a prince even if he's an exiled prince does he really not have like does he really have to be respectful and reverent Mm. to a commander yeah you know i I don't know so that's a question it I don't know. It, I probably it seems like even though um, he is a prince, the banished thing does seem to whenever he interacts with people seem to supersede that. Mm. You know, like it seems like if people treat him respectfully, it's just because they, you know, choose to recognize his princeliness. Mm. Interesting. Mm. 
Okay. Um, well, then we uh, go ahead and go back uh, over to Aang's uh, side of things. Oh, man. Poor Aang. He's in such denial. Cause, like, That's what I wrote. Yeah, it, in the first episode, they like the first thing Grand Grand Sun was like, we thought you guys were extinct. Basically. Which, by the way, I wrote down, what a weird word to use in retrospect. Mm-hmm. I feel like they just weren't allowed to say genocide. Right. Well, also, I don't know if, like... It's possible that the team was a little concerned, like, would kids understand what, you know, genocide meant? Yeah. It's kind of a big word. Maybe it's kind of like, maybe we don't want to have parents talk to their kids about what the word genocide is. Yeah, so they kind of like, it's more of a show, don't tell. But I think extinct is also something of an interesting word to use, since these, you know, the people in this world are not separated just by different culture, but, like, also by different, like, magical ability Mm -hmm. right something that is like hereditary that's very like you know noticeable Mm -hmm. and like physically manifest well so do you think they see each other more as like separate species and races i think so a little bit Mm -hmm. um i mean i know that already like that's um like something that occurs in our world just by like different physical appearance right um and so that sounds like a strange thing to say like oh well they have like this one additional um physical manifestation of like difference in background that like somehow that kind of like brings them to a species level i don't know hard to say yeah hard to say um but yeah i also wrote uh at four minutes seven seconds uh that ang is in denial Mm -hmm. just complete denial about what has happened to his people he just seems to assume that they they've been in hiding yeah, I mean, all he's seen so far is the Fire Nation's effect on the Southern Water Tribe, mm-hmm. you know, so I guess, because he, it, I think it's still working into his brain that he's been gone for a hundred years, you yeah. know, like, I think if you told somebody if, like, for whatever reason, had been asleep for a hundred years, like, I don't think it's possible to really understand how long that is, mm-hmm. you know, right away. Well, that, and I also think that, especially for a child, but really I think for any, you know, human being, mm-hmm. that whenever there is troubling circumstance, whether it's like natural disaster or a man-made, you mm-hmm. know, disaster, that when that's happening in the world, I think that a lot of times uh, people, and especially children, uh, really struggle to grasp with like what that means, especially mm-hmm. in terms of how like it impacts them unless like they see it firsthand you know what i mean like we kind of see with certain current events that uh, a lot of times people don't seem to take a problem seriously until it comes into their own personal life yeah definitely i i I think that's what this whole episode's about honestly and thinking that this is a problem outside of himself right until he's forced to confront the fact that it is it has touched him and it has touched his home yeah very very personally yeah so, um, one other note I put for this part of the episode is, like, when they're first approaching the Southern Air Temple, uh, you know, Aang is kind of showing how difficult it is to get to this place, right? because right? it's, like, situated, like, it's, like, the, their mountains are, like, 30-degree angle points. Yes. Like, they're super sharp. Yeah, so Appa has to basically, like, at one point, he goes at, like, a 180-degree angle yeah. to, like, fly straight up this cliff yeah. to get to the top. And I wrote a question here. is like, how do these kids not fall off? Like, they don't have seatbelts or anything. Aang's holding on to the, you know, reins, but Katara's, like, maybe holding on to some tufts of fur. The, <laughs> the little, like, saddle thing. Yeah, I'm like, <laughs> and they're probably flying really fast, too. I was like, I think that the average person would just fall 
fall off and die, honestly. Yeah, no, that'd be like the most terrifying roller coaster ever. Oh my god. I kind of had similar thoughts of just like, oh man, they, like, Appa as a vehicle is pretty dicey. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I guess we're just not supposed to, once again, you know, don't question the physics of the show too mm. much. Like, just gotta do it and uh, accept that that is how it works. Uh, so then we go back over to Zuko's side of it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote here at right at five minutes into the episode uh, that there's a quote from Zuko that really struck me mm-hmm. where he says, if my father thinks the rest of the world will follow him willingly, then he is a fool. And I thought that this was a really interesting thing for Zuko to say, especially so early into the show, because, and also to someone who's like not Iroh, yeah. right? Someone who's like just outside. A pretty high-ranking commander. A high-ranking commander who has a decent amount of power and who, you know, definitely doesn't seem to think much of Zuko. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it was just really interesting. I wrote that like, you know, Zuko seems to still have a rebelling a uh, bit of his personality that's still there. Uh, and even though he wants his honor back and his father's respect back, he still doesn't see eye to eye with him. Or yeah. Anything. No pun intended. Damn. <laughs> that's harsh. <laughs> but it's true, though. They, they really don't like see eye to eye, even though, you know, Zuko is working on behalf of the royal family and this whole quest to find the mm-hmm. Avatar. He just doesn't really seem to buy into the idea that the Fire Nation can control the whole world. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. Um, I, I, I had a question about, like, because um, Zhao's uh, underlings come in and then talk about how Zuko's crew spilled the beans. I was like, did Zuko not tell them to keep their lips shut or is Zuko's crew just not loyal to him? I That was the same question I had. And honestly, I don't know. I think you could make arguments either way, right? Mm. Like, because Zuko doesn't seem to necessarily have a whole lot of, like, amicable relationships. I was gonna, that's what I was going to say. He doesn't treat them very well. But, yeah, like, he doesn't treat them very well. And again, like, bringing up the question of, like, how much, you know, political power does Zuko actually have? You know, mm-hmm. are they actually that deferential to him and his position or at least mm. his past oh, position. Oh, like you're saying that like, hey, we have got orders from we've got orders from Commander Zhao, tell us what you saw. Yeah, like, yeah, like that was one thing that crossed my mind and then just another thing is uh, also Zhao is showing himself to be kind of an underhanded, backstabbing do whatever it takes kind of dude. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's also possible that the um, quote unquote interrogations were a little bit more forceful yeah. than we might first think. Yeah. Um, so it's entirely possible that he used an any means necessary to get the information kind of route. Mm. Um, but something that I wrote about this before uh, the soldiers came in and kind of like revealed that they had already gotten the information and the scene ends um, is that right after Zuko said that whole thing about his dad being a fool, mm-hmm. um, then uh, Zhao kind of really quickly quips back, two years at sea have done little to temper your tongue. Yep. And I thought that that was a really good way to kind of hint a little bit at Zuko's backstory. Right, like why he's banished. Yeah, like that he, like someone even like Zhao, like knows a bit about him being disrespectful. Yeah. Right, and just saying off the cuff, like what he thinks. So that was kind of interesting. Um, and Which, then also... You know, oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, like, it, it's interesting, too, because then it's like, you got to think about the perspective, right? Like, what did Zuko say or what was his point of view that, you know, pissed off the bad guy, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, hmm. Mm-hmm. 
you know, think about that. Yeah, definitely is a little bit of a thinker that I think in the moment you kind of hear it. And especially as a kid, I probably didn't think that much of it. Mm -hmm. But now older and rewatching it, I'm like, oh, that's like a good little clue. Right. It's like if he just agreed with the bad guy, then he wouldn't be where he is. But it's like, hmm. He just kind of can't help but say what he thinks. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, And then right after that, Zhao goes on this like little rant where he says to Zuko, um, you know, being suspicious of him and like everything to do with like tracking the Avatar. Uh, Commander Zhao says, if you have an ounce of loyalty left, you will tell me. Mm -hmm. And I wrote here that like Zhao sure is disrespectful to Zuko. Like he's just straight up rude. Well, I think he's having a bit of a like um, a power trip right now. Yeah, power play with him. Yeah, because like I think he does think of himself as higher ranking than Zuko now. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. And he definitely shows that in his behavior. Um, But... I think that that also will connect a little bit to the the last uh, oh. message delivered to us at the end of this episode, yes. which I'll get to. So I'll come back. I have back. a lot to say about that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That the the fight in the Agni Kai is definitely very right. revealing. And then, so I mean, did you have more to say? No, no, I'm ready to go oh, on okay. to the yeah. Aang part so, again. <laughs> it, the first thing I wrote down was just at 6:45 when they finally get to the Air Temple and Aang sees what's become of it in the last mm-hmm. hundred years. And what a good shot at 645 where he's just like, I think it's a recurring theme where they constantly have this image of Aang looking out into like off a cliff or into Mm -hmm. like a great expanse. Kind of like at the intro sequence. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And it's always like emphasizing his loneliness, you know. Mm -hmm. That isolation. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I also wrote, and I think I brought this up before when we watched this episode, that I find it a little bit... I don't know, what's the word? Incredulous, dubious, mm-hmm. whatever you want to say. Like, why have none of the trees or plants grown back in a hundred years? I get that they are trying to show, like, clues that the Fire Nation has been here, right? Because yeah. we have these, like, dead, almost, like, burnt to a crisp trees. Well, and, like, there's just no other signs of life and everything. And so I get that, that like, setting-wise, it's communicating something. But, again, realistically, after a hundred years, especially if there was no people there... Plants would have started growing back. Probably, yeah. I, I I think it's just definitely a storytelling technique rather than a realism thing. Although, in I would say that ever since the airbenders were gone, there's no... Because that mountain is extreme. Yeah. Like, honestly, I feel like what little life that there was was, like, cultivated and, like, preserved by the airbenders. I guess that's true. But, I mean, I've been on mountaintops before, and yeah. they like there's just crazy amounts of like plants and fauna and yeah. everything I mean, growing. You do see like trees growing at like, you know, 70 degree angles or whatever. Yeah. Pretty wild. I mean, admittedly, I've never been like at the top of Mount Everest or anything like that, so mm-hmm. maybe it's a difference in well, altitude. I was going to say the altitude in Mount Everest just is cold, so nothing grows there. Yeah, so I don't know if like that's what... But I feel like even, I don't know, I feel like if there was going to be any, like, possibility of even, like, humans being able to cultivate that kind of life that we see in the flashback mm-hmm. with Aang, um, the before the Fire Nation attack, um, like, all those trees probably, like, wouldn't have been able to grow there if the climate didn't allow for it on its own. You know what I mean? Yeah, I get you. So, I don't know. But anyways, this is just me, once again, just, like, debating about the realism of this cartoon show yeah. with people who have it's, magical powers. It's, it's... <laughs> The acceptable level of, like, suspension of disbelief that you have to have, you know, where it's like, okay, they're trying to tell you that the firebenders, they messed some shit up. Um, so then, uh, 
Sokka tries to cheer Aang up a little bit, and they decide to play a little game of what uh, Aang calls airball. Yes. And I wrote at seven minutes, three seconds, when Sokka goes flying through the clearly CG gold post. Yeah. So, the first little elements of CG you see. Yeah, well, clearly CG. I, clearly. I don't want to say for like certain that like it's entirely possible like some of the boats or something that we saw before were also CG. Yeah. But this is a moment where I think that like it really is just glaringly obvious. Yeah. You know. I think they did fun. a good job considering it's like 2005, but it's uh. It still sticks out. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't blame them for not wanting to draw like 70 poles. Yeah, no, that's fair. <laughs> I, I completely understand. But um, also I wrote for 7 minutes 34 seconds, so just a little bit later, uh, poor Sokka man in this whole sequence. Like he just like is always the butt of the joke, whether it's Aang sending him flying through a goalpost and landing on his face to like Katara throwing snow on top of him to hide the, the Fire Nation helmet. Uh, I just like, man, can't catch a break. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a famous part of his character arc, right? Where it's like, you know, um, I don't think we've talked about it before, but, uh, you know, Sokka was originally not going to be a consistent main character. He was just supposed to be that comedic relief in the very beginning. Right. Yeah. And I don't really, I don't think that in these first couple of episodes, you you see anything beyond that, right? No. There's not a whole lot of glimpses in what two is going to, what's going to become later of Sokka's character. And as you said, um, just to let people know who are listening, it, it is something that's come up before, I think, in some interviews. And I'll have to try and track down, maybe I'll put a link whenever we post the podcast to some of the interviews that have discussed, like, Sokka's character development mm-hmm. and how in the beginning, yeah, Bright, they didn't have really... Um, special plans for him beyond yeah just being like the kind of layman's perspective and comedic relief yeah but then uh the voice actor for Sokka was just so phenomenal like he just kind of brought a new element a new aspect again pun not intended for element but um a new energy to this character that they just found so appealing and I guess they just liked the voice actor so much as well that they decided they wanted to incorporate his um, his role a little bit more mm-hmm. uh, significantly into the show. You know, and I think that was for all the better. Yeah, you know? I mean, for... Because he was also a teenager. Like, all the main characters were voiced by, like, you know, similarly aged children. Mm-hmm. Um, and he does he has a lot of energy. And yeah. not just, like, childish energy. Yeah. It's like, you know... Oh, no, his line delivery is amazing. Yeah, he did a really good job. You yeah, know? anytime like, he's, like, feeling desperate or, like, whiny or whatever, it comes across, like, you know, really... Mm-hmm. sincerely and i think that that's great but uh you know just for his like you know character and like the the significance of that role right especially towards the end of the show i think um that in the end it was a really good good change yes um because we get to see not only the power and impact of people who are benders in this world but also that just regular people who aren't benders can make a difference and i think that that's mm-hmm. like a powerful message um, to anyone watching the show. Yeah, I think it, the show would have definitely taken different directions if Sokka wasn't present the I whole time. I think it would have suffered, Yeah, honestly. Like, I think that... Like, the whole point is that you get everybody's perspective. Yeah. Like, I feel like in uh, other, like, child stories about, you know, magic and uh, things of that nature, I kind of go back to, like, Harry Potter. I hope that's not too cliche of a reference. But, you know... Yes, that entire story primarily takes place in the quote-unquote magical world, Um, but there are plenty of people in that show that are not magic 
wielders, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't mean just like muggles, uh, people who are just, you know, regular folks who know nothing about the magical world. But then there's also what they call squibs, Mm -hmm. who are people who know of the magical world but have no magic ability. And in that entire story, they were basically like, like kind of how Sokka is in the beginning. They're just jokes, right? Yeah. Or like they're just people who get pranks played on them and they don't really play a role. They don't really do anything of notable significance to the plot the story mm-hmm. um and they definitely don't seem to be taken seriously and um so i think that was really refreshing in a sh- um a story like this that had you know magic all around them right uh and the primary conflict consisting between uh people who wielded magic but then we also have characters like Sokka and Suki, um yeah and i mean uh, even like tylee and mai yeah that play their own role and we'll see in sort of the self-contained um, one-off episodes, they're, they're, they do a really good job of portraying, like, um, non-benders contributing and dealing with the war in their own ways as well, very, Absolutely. very effectively. Yeah, so I definitely really appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so segueing back into the actual show, mm-hmm. um, uh, right after Katara pulls that move of, like, uh, bending the snow to cover up the fire uh, bender helmet from... Mm-hmm. Uh, Aang. From Aang, yes. Um, Sokka says, you know, you can't protect him forever. And, well, I think that this is definitely, you know, like, a well-duh kind of moment. Um, I did make a note that I think that this was also kind of something unfair for Sokka to say, because Katara clearly was trying to tell Aang at the beginning of the episode, um, you know... She's been trying to tell him for, like, two episodes. She's been trying to tell him for a while, and he's clearly just in denial. Yeah. And so I think that she kind of thought, like, you know, well, what's the point of me, like... At some point, it almost comes off as cruel, right? Yeah. Of just being like, well, look at this, well, we'll look at this, like, it's some, like, you know, forcing someone to confront, um the genocide of their people at some point it just starts to feel kind of mean there's no good way to do that definitely. yeah so i don't know i felt that was kind of an unfair thing for Sokka to say even if he had just been you know repeatedly pounded it would by bending mm-hmm. <laughs> a couple of times um but on a happier note uh, at eight minutes 20 seconds we get to see um the many uses of airbending beyond just you know uh, deflection in combat. Uh, we get to see baking while airbending, mm. for example, in this flashback with Aang and Gyatso, his, yes. his mentor. So I, I've, I've been waiting until this moment to go back to what we were talking about the last episode about family structure mm-hmm. uh, and the airbenders and the air nomads. Mm. And it's just clearly Gyatso was Aang's father figure, right? Mm-hmm. Like, they have multiple flashbacks just showing his relationship with him. Or maybe grandfather figure. Or grandfather figure. You know, it, it's... A father figure, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's great. Yeah, you know, he, he's very. They they don't spend a lot of time on it, but he clearly has a very close relationship with him. Right, and I mean, I know that I talked about this a little bit before, right? Just like kind of questioning how family dynamics work mm-hmm. in um, the air nomad, you know, community, mm-hmm. and um, I think that you're right that there definitely are people who play the role of like parents um, in this community because obviously kids need. Like, like older people to look after them yeah um but yeah it's still just i don't know is a little questionable to me like i also wonder the fact like you know was ang raised by someone like yatso who's like clearly like an airbending master mm-hmm. and um so like famous he got a statue made of him because they knew he was the avatar well they didn't know he was the avatar or... I don't they think knew when he was like a, 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 a toddler young, yeah because they did the test or whatever yeah when he was like a, yeah. like two or three years old maybe so I, I i was just gonna say that i think that 
um, the air nomads kind of take to heart the whole like it takes a village to raise a kid mm-hmm. uh, phrase. You know, mm-hmm. like I don't, I wasn't gonna say that Yatsa was his only, you know, guiding force, but right. definitely they had a close relationship. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Um, also, the other note I was going to have about this flashback scene was at 9 minutes, 23 seconds. What a waste of cakes, man. <laughs> I mean, I get that they were probably getting revenge on those, you know, fuddy-duddy old monks who decided to break the news to Aang that you're the Avatar and you have to master all the elements now because stuff's getting bad. Yeah. <laughs> and everything like that. Like, I, I get it. But still, man, those poor cakes. <laughs> I was going to say, like, right after that in 925, the first appearance of Momo's theme. <laughs> yes! I almost made note of that. I'm so glad you yes. brought it up. <laughs> I, it, I, it's one of the, like, iconic songs to me in Avatar. I don't even know if you call it, call it a song. Yes. But it's just, it pops into my brain whenever I think of it's Avatar. It's so wacky and mm-hmm. just silly and definitely just kind of perfectly encapsulates the energy that is Momo. Yeah. <laughs> or the lemurs, I guess, in this scene. The lemurs, yes. But it's a good little foreshadowing of what's to come, <laughs> right? So um, then I wrote at 10 minutes, 28 seconds, we see another example of non-combative bending, uh, where we are using air bending as a key to unlock a door. Right. Which seems to be a theme as the show goes on. Yes. But I like it. You know, I think that it's really clear that Bryke was trying to show how deeply per- pervasive this magical ability this magical art thank you uh was to each of these different societies right Mm -hmm. it wasn't just about using it to fight yeah like it was about really integrating it into life yeah all around them using it for baking using it for unlocking secret doors philosophy a lifestyle it's a part of who they were exactly it came to them as naturally as breathing yeah Especially the airbenders. Yes, especially airbenders. Also, the door lock was also CG. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I didn't yeah. note that, but you're right. It absolutely was. I guess that was just another thing that they, like, uh, I don't want to animate the rotating thing. Yeah, it's <laughs> easier to have a 3D model. Yeah, but it, it was pretty pretty obvious. Um, then uh, I jump ahead a little bit here to uh, 15 minutes, 58 seconds. Mm-hmm. I hope that's not too far ahead from No, no. Notes. I mean, we do take a moment to go back to Zuko's story, but not a whole lot happens. Yeah, I mean, it's mostly just, like, kind of him and Zhao, like, you know, yakking at each other's faces, and then they're yeah. like, Agni Kai! And, like, there's no real context to what an Agni Kai mm-hmm. is, other than, like, you know, Ira being like, do you remember what happened oh. the last time you went up against a master? Um... Before we go to 15, I just wanted to say that, like, when they actually get into the Avatar room, Mm -hmm. that room is another part where you kind of have to do a little suspension of disbelief because it's like the the spiral circles Mm -hmm. and centers on Roku, the previous Avatar. So does every time they have a new Avatar, they just make a new statue and then shift every single statue over one? I guess... I, I don't know, I just honestly. Thought, I just thought about how much work that would be, and I was like, this But seems... if you're an airbender, maybe it's not that hard. <laughs> I guess so. Maybe not. I don't um, know. Oh, also, I can't believe you're going to skip over the actual introduction of Momo. Oh, yes! I'm so sorry! I was just kind of jumping ahead to, like, my next um, 
thought about like a big plot point. But yes, Momo, he shows up. Yeah. And I love his, you know, like introduction of just kind of like fake terror, right? Yeah. You know, being mm-hmm. like, oh, a fire, a fire nation army person is here. And then it's just some wacky little lemur. Yes. And of course, Sokka just immediately seeing everything in terms of what it could do for him. Just being like, ooh, Boo. meat, yeah. you know? And then Aang just being like, my friend, you know? <laughs> so just really showing their kind of... um Hierarchy of needs. <laughs> uh, I also wanted to take a quick moment to appreciate uh, the voice actor for Momo. Oh, okay. You have some facts for us? Yes, I do. Because uh, I this was the I don't know about his career before Avatar because this is the first time I knew about him. Was um, the voice actor for Momo and Appa is a man called D. Bradley Baker, who's mm. built his entire career around creature voices so like if there's like a movie that has like a weird creature and like uh needs like some sort of you know guttural sound it's like almost always him yeah very very famous um which i i think is important because you know in these cartoon shows whenever they have these critters they almost always use just like combinations Mm -hmm. of like stock animal sound effects and then Mm -hmm. after a while you kind of start to recognize the ones they use right but for momo and appa it's you know acting it's it's real acting with real voices Mm -hmm. so they again lends to the authenticity of these characters as they appear because they're so you know relevant to the show yeah i think that we do see time and time again that uh when it comes to any aspect of the storytelling um i mean we talk a lot about the writing or at least i talk a lot about the writing because that's something that's really significant to me and stands out right away Mm -hmm. but also um the visuals of the show the sound of the show every single aspect of the storytelling uh breik really drives home again and again how much they want this story to be different from everything else that was on TV at the time. Yeah. Like, they were wanting it to stand on its own. And, you know, you could say in some ways, well, maybe they're just trying to fill the brief that Nickelodeon put out, which is, like, we want a show that has its own lore and -hmm. its own... A legend. Legend, and just, like, you know, kind of is its own self-contained universe. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, in some ways, by having just completely original uh, sound and audio and music that helps it be this kind of self-contained universe that doesn't make a whole lot of outside reference. Mm-hmm. Um, but also I think that it just also goes back to the fact that these are storytellers who are trying to tell um, a very authentic um, story. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so um, is it okay if I go on to my note at 15 yes, minutes? Yes, of course. Sorry, I'm so sorry. No, no, you don't have to apologize. I'm sorry for rushing ahead. Uh, but I just always have like, you know, anytime a major plot point happens, I, I make note of it. Uh, so at 15 minutes, 58 seconds... Um, when uh, Aang comes across the very sad scene. Oh, I'm of... sorry. If you're going that far, I have one more thing. Okay. All right. Go okay. ahead. So, because there is another, like, little cut to what Zuko and Iroh are doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is, yeah, the moment where they get challenged to the Agni Kai. Oh, okay. Right? And um, uh, Iroh asks Zuko, like, have you forgotten what happened the last time you dueled a master? Right. And, like, I think it's a really great piece of cinematic storytelling where, like, in the frame they show, like, Zuko's clean, like, face mm-hmm. uh, with Iroh asking the question. Mm-hmm. And then it pans as they as Iroh says master to the scar. Mm-hmm. So just, like, 
they don't, they're not telling you. They clearly are communicating it, though. They're clearly communicating that's like, that's how he got that scar. And I just thought that was a really good scene. Yeah, that was really um, yeah. definitely a great example of visual storytelling, yes. right? So we talked about the, um, you know, audio way that they're communicating. Yeah, and yeah. Authenticity. And then, yeah, the visual storytelling is also very strong. Um, is it okay now if I go yes, up to my yes. note? I'm so, I'm so sorry. <laughs> Are there no more? Okay. Um, so 15 minutes, 58 seconds, uh, when Aang comes across a very sad scene of, you know, at least a dozen, if not more, uh, you know, corpses, uh, or I guess I should say at this point, skeletons, mm-hmm. um, of various, uh, Fire um, Nation army people yeah um and then at the center of it all is a skeleton wearing um you know these air nomad clothes and this very identifiable uh little talisman Mm -hmm. uh necklace thing uh that we identify with gyatso Mm -hmm. because we saw his statue in the flashback earlier um and so ang doesn't say anything at this time but you know he falls to the ground and he's crying and everything like that and i just wrote a note here for the scene that um it really struck me, at least rewatching this now, that like Gyatso, Gyatso is a really strong airbender. I mean, I yes. know that they already said that before that he was a master and everything like that, but I think this scene more than the statue communicated that to me. Well, yeah, because it's implying that he like probably took down all these Fire Nation by soldiers. himself. Yeah, probably to like protect the other airbenders. Right, and you know, considering that he was such an old guy and everything, mm-hmm. I don't know. I found that very impressive. Um, but yeah, so, um, Aang is just completely distraught and, uh, his, you know, emotional state causes him to go into the avatar state, Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, gets the glowy eyes and everything. And to mirror that, right, we go over to Katara, who's still in the room with all the avatar statues and we see all those avatar statues also start to get the glowing eyes. So that's... When I had a question. Well, I think we have yeah. the same question. Because I wrote, I wonder why those statues didn't go off with these glowy eyes, mm. whatever stuff, when Aang used the Avatar state before. Because yeah. we have seen him now use the Avatar state technically twice. Yeah. Okay, so the um, first time that we saw him use the Avatar state was when he went into... or even when he came out of that iceberg, mm-hmm. right, that he put himself into with the Avatar state. Yeah. Then the second time is when he was nearly thrown off the ship by Zuko. Yeah. Um, and I believe that was in episode two. Yes. And then he also, again, went into the Avatar state. And neither of those times, you know, did any, like, we get any sequence scene where it's like, oh, the Avatar state's been activated and everywhere around the world, like, all of China knows that you're here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so... Yeah. Gratuitous Mulan reference. Yeah, but. I, it, it is so strange to me. I don't know if I'd call it a plot hole because I guess you could make an argument about like the severity of it, mm-hmm. but it still seems strange. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't understand why they couldn't have just held off a little on that, yeah. but... And I don't think they reference back to it ever again. No, it's it just, I guess it's just supposed to set up the idea that, like, a lot more people are aware that he's back. Right. I mean, yeah. the only possible explanation I could think of was that he was in such close proximity to an Avatar statue. Maybe. At the time, Maybe. and, like, those statues have some kind of spiritual Yeah, that's connection. what I was going to say, like, those spiritual, like, epicenters, yeah. Yeah. Maybe. I mean, definitely, I think you could make the argument that the Air Temple, yeah, was in uh, a center of 
spirituality. Yeah. And so maybe like there was still so so much remaining there in terms of like, you know, essence I, I, that he I, tapped into. Yeah. My only argument was going to say like, yeah, maybe the severity thing. Cause like I wanted to bring back again, like the structure of the air nomadic family. And it's like, mm-hmm. this is confirmation for Aang seeing monkey Atso's body. Mm-hmm. Uh, not only that his close mentor is dead, but mm-hmm. also that his entire nation is dead. And, uh, you know, going back to how they raise each other, like, think about losing your entire family right. in one day. Right. Like, that emotional trauma. Right. That's that's all I can say. I still think it's a little strange, though, so. Yeah. There's no real clear, like, justification given for why those statues react the way they do. But mm-hmm. it happens. Um, and so, if it's okay, I'm going to go ahead and transition back to what's going on with Zuko's side mm-hmm. of this episode. Um, so, the Agni Kai, the big fight, is starting off between Zuko and Commander Zhao. Mm-hmm. And first thing that I noted was that I love that they have cute little outfits yes. for, for these fights. That they just have, I guess, on hand at all times. Where you got your little arm bracelets that seem to serve no function, but then you have to be shirtless. And they have to wear these special little floofy yes. pants. And <laughs> Yeah, it is pretty interesting. I guess it says something about, you know, the Fire Nation's pomp and circumstance, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, got to get in my special Agni Kai clothes, yeah. which is really just pants. <laughs> I will say, though, that there is some historical precedence in the real world for those armbands, though. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. There's a, a Thai uh, fighting style called Muay Thai. Mm. And whenever they have, like, you know, matches, because it's uh, called Thai boxing, basically, mm-hmm. uh, they wear those little armbands and those are, like, your symbols. Like, usually they're braided in colors denoting where the fighter's from and stuff like that. But anyway. But in this case, they're both from the Fire Nation. Yeah, in in this case, it's just fancy little armbands. I'm just saying. (laughs) In the real world, there is... There is a there is a martial art where they like decorate themselves the armbands and then are fighting shirtless. Well, thank you for that. Maybe uh-huh. it gives a little bit more justification to. It's a little silly. It's I will a say. little silly, but it's at least there's some kind of real world um, precedent, I guess. Back to the music, though. I the just, music. Yeah. I was about to talk about this. The, a, a, another super iconic yes. Avatar song. The cha cha yeah. Oh my god, I love it so much. Anytime I hear it, I just start wanting to jam. Like, yeah. it's just so good. Like, how it just brings up the entire energy of mm-hmm. any scene, right? That, like, you know, oh, stuff is about to go and then down. You can tell that they kind of, like, blew a little bit more of their episode budget on animation <laughs> on that scene, yes! too. I appreciated it, though. It was definitely a very good scene. Um, most of this episode, as you can tell from my notes, I was mostly focused on, like, what's going on with Aang, mm-hmm. right? Because it is a really important plot point. But then this, like, Agni Kai at the end definitely brings back home, like, the significance of Zuko's storyline mm-hmm. and his arc and everything that's going on with him um so yeah like there's this you know fight that's going on between them and at the beginning it seems like you know Zhao really has um the advantage yes he is just you know relentlessly coming at Zuko yeah I I will say like um at 18 minutes 37 seconds mm-hmm. uh I had a what I was saying earlier about there being such good animation but then like they reuse the same like Zuko deflecting fire animation like yeah. three times yeah but to be fair I mean I think like it was just showing how he was just kind of like you know basically spamming a yes. right you know on on I, Zuko it, 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 <laughs> Served its purpose. It was just a little odd to see. <laughs> right. Uh, fair enough. But um, then, you know, right at the, uh, well, I guess you would call it the middle of the fight, what mm-hmm. seems like the end of the fight at first, uh, where uh, Zhao is about to take the final strike at Zuko, and he somehow, like, rallies himself back mm-hmm. to, like, uh, 
take Zhao by surprise, right? And I wrote here that he he sweeped a leg. Yes, he did sweep a leg. Well, he took Iroh's <laughs> advice to heart, where because he, Iroh was saying you got to break his root, and yes. the, the root being his legs. His so. legs, yeah. yeah. And I think Zhao was kind of like doing that as well, but we see him right being someone who kind of suffers from the same issue that um, Zuko does, which is like you know just going in brute force, yes, and not mm-hmm. really focusing on the basics. And so when we see you know the finally tipping point. the tipping point, right um, when every Everything's about to fall apart for Zuko. He decides to finally listen to his uncle, mm-hmm. and that it proves all the better. It's for not him. about his bending force; mm-hmm. it's about understanding, you know, the balance of your fighters, you right? Know? And under, like you know, really getting inside the head of the person you're against, mm-hmm. right? Um, which re- requires a bit of empathy, which Zuko is working on. Uh, but he's able to do that. He's able to sweep the leg, uh, and, and then he's able to get Zhao to be the one who's on his back. Um, and right when he has the chance to take that final strike, unlike Zhao, he actually, you know, holds back. Zhao kind of tries to goad him on, yeah. you know, just being like, go on, you know, do it, right? And then, um, like, Zuko seems to fall for the taunt, but not really, because he intentionally misses. Yeah, um, you don't, we don't get a lot of context about Agni Kai's until way later, but it seems that, like, if you engage in one... It's supposed to be a battle to the death. It's supposed to, like, you're supposed to leave a mark. Yeah. You know? Like, it's a serious thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think Zuko purposely missing is, again, just another little glimpse into his hidden compassionate side. Right. You know, even for someone who has been such a jerk to him. He can't bring himself to be truly cruel to someone yeah. else, mm-hmm. I don't think. Um, so, and then, uh, so Zhao misses out on being physically burned by Zuko, but I made note of the fact that he got two big burns to his ego by Iroh, who, um, stops him when he tries to pull a dirty, you know, yeah, behind the... Behind the back, back move yeah. of getting at Zuko, and, uh, I love the part where Iroh just grabs his foot... And then just kind of really lightly flicks his wrist. Yeah, it looks like he just bends his wrist, but like Zhao goes flying. He goes flying. It's and so wild. that's kind of a little clue to the hidden power that's lying kind of dormant inside of Iroh. Yeah, granted, I mean, like Zhao had one foot like above his waist. So he wasn't super balanced. Yeah, he was not super balanced, but still, that's like eyebrow raising. Yeah, he know? doesn't move any other part of his body. He just flicks his wrist. Yeah. And I mean, you could say that maybe that was just a point of like the animation you know, budget being already used up on the fight. And so they were just like, oh, just have him flick his wrist. Well, <laughs> I, I think, I think it's, so that it's also a really yeah, cool looking scene. Definitely. Um, but I wrote that the two emotional ego burns that Iroh delivers back to back to Zhao is, um, you know, this is how the commander uh, acts in defeat. Disgraceful. Yeah. You know? And then turns he, his back, he, walks away. Well, no, before he turns away, second burn, like I said, they're back to back. He says disgraceful and then he also says, even in exile, my nephew has more honor than you. Yeah. You know? And then he turns and walks away and I was like, woo! <laughs> and then it says, thanks for the tea. Yeah, thanks for the tea though. It was delicious. Yeah. So, oh. man, Iroh knows how to, like, really get at somebody. I meant, I meant to say this earlier, but Iroh's favorite tea, ginseng tea. Oh, yeah. Disgusting. Disgusting. It's, like, truly horrible. Like, <laughs> I don't understand how he calls it delicious besides just being an old man. Yes. But, like, anybody who's tried actual ginseng tea is just, like, that's 100% bitter. Bitter. That's yeah. it. But he likes it. He likes his hot leaf juice. Ugh. <laughs> 
<laughs> and nobody can convince him otherwise. Um, so those were all the notes that I had for the Zuko end of the episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so going back uh, to this final note that we have with Aang, um, he's still in the Avatar state. And um, a recurring theme that we're going to see come back again and again, but this is the first time, uh, Katara is the one who talks Aang out of the Avatar state, which I think is very interesting when you consider the fact that, you know, Aang, when he's in the Avatar state, he's not really quite himself, Mm-mm. right? He's basically being hundreds of people at once. Yeah. but And it seems to just sort of like even out to nothing almost. Yeah. But still somehow like the voice of somebody that he cares about deeply is able to reach him. Wink. Yeah. And so, yeah, and it's, it's definitely no, you know, surprise or like unintentional thing that it's Katara who always talks him out of it, right? Yeah. Uh, but this is the first time that she does that. And she says, you know, like, we're your family now, which I think is very sweet. Katara is just so fast to adopt it. Yes, I know. Like, she, like again, I said she has this maternal instinct, right? She's just such a mom. Yeah. I mean, she sees anybody who needs help and she's just like, it's okay, baby. I will be your mom now. But what's great is that soccer <laughs> reciprocates, you know? Yes. Like, he has such a good, like, soft facial expression. He's like, yeah, you're our family. You know, you're a bud. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, it's towards the end, I think, yeah, after uh, Aang kind of calms down yes, a little bit. Yeah. And he says, like, you know, we're not going anywhere or something mm-hmm. like that. And so definitely he was being supportive. And I wrote at 21 minutes, uh, two seconds right at the end, there's like a nice little handhold between Katara and Aang. And mm-hmm. they like close up on it with her little mitten hand. They sure <laughs> like to do that. Yeah, they love to show whenever they hold hands. And I just thought it was so cute. And um, then there is, like, sad little finger piano kalimba at the end. Yeah. As Aang says goodbye to his his people. And those were all the notes that I had. Yeah. I'm good. I, I'm so sorry that this episode ran a little long. But there was a lot to cover in this episode, so... Yeah. I hope y'all enjoyed. I hope so. We, we have um, a lot of opinions and at least a couple of facts. Uh, but we hope that you will join us next time as we rewatch Chapter 4, The Warriors of Kiyoshi. Next episode. Yep, yep. <laughs>